0: Uh, Moving on to scripture reading, today's scripture reading is going to come from Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Uh, Here now is the word of God. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Word of God. Amen.
1: Thanks, David. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Mercy Palisades Church. Um, I have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker for today, but before I do that, I just want to highlight a, a couple things. Um, so first and foremost, we are in the season of Lent and we have, we printed a Lent prayer devotional for everybody. Uh, we have plenty of copies. So if you did not receive a copy last week, uh, you can just pick one up on the way out. There'll be one on the welcoming table and, uh, we're going through this as a community and, uh, yeah, we just really, uh, have been encouraged by it already. So if you didn't grab one, please do. Uh, grab one. The other thing I want to mention is today we do have uh, a newcomer's dinner. Uh, If you are a newcomer to the church, um, you're welcome to come. Uh, You can let our MC know that uh, you'd like to uh, uh, come uh, today. It's going to be at my place, uh, and we usually have a really great time. We have great food today. We're going to have Persian food, I think. Uh, So, is my head in the way? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, Okay, Without further ado, let me introduce our, our guest speaker. Uh, her name is Pastor Dohi Kim. She's an associate pastor at Joy Christian Fellowship, which is just a couple towns over, right? Um, and uh, so I met Pastor Dohi a couple months ago. I would say a couple months ago, maybe a little bit more. At uh, we have a regional pastors' gathering. All the pastors in the region, or actually a good number of them, we get together once a month to just fellowship with one another, and I had the privilege of meeting her for the first time a couple months ago, and it was, a, uh, it was a super encouraging conversation, right? I had a really great time getting to know her, and uh, we learned that we had a, a bunch of things in common. Uh, we went to the same seminary, uh, which is Princeton Theological Seminary. We had a bunch of friends that, that overlap. Uh, she's also, and this is huge, she's also lifelong friends with Pastor Mimi, uh, Pastor Mimi is the one who spoke at our retreat a couple years ago. You guys remember her, right? Uh, I think you guys knew each other since diapers or something like that. This is crazy. Uh, so, and Pastor Mimi, I, I called her up to get the lowdown on uh, Pastor Dohi and just had the best words to to say about her. I also learned that her husband is a getting a PhD in theology and science. Uh, which for me is just right up my alley. That's uh, the stuff that I love, so I'm very much looking forward to meeting him. His name is Enoch, I believe. And uh, I also just recently learned that she is a pastry, or used to be a pastry chef, right, and had uh, something in the city, like your own business. Uh, I know there's a bunch of up-and-coming bakers in our church, so if you want to get some advice, please do uh, Attacker after service. Um, and, and lastly, she used to work at Grace Way, uh, which is a church in central Jersey. A good friend of mine leads that church, Pastor David Choi, and she was uh, one of the pastors there for a bit. Uh, just one fun note she uh, loves doing crossword puzzles, always does the New York Times, and Wordle. I know we have a bunch of people who are obsessed with Wordle. I haven't touched Wordle in a while, but. I think it's still a thing, right? Okay, without further ado, please uh, welcome Pastor Dohi Kim up here for us.
2: Good morning. So, um, um, I don't do the Wordle anymore. Uh, I gave it up for Lent because... Um, Oh, I'm sorry, not the Wordle, the crossword puzzle. I gave it up for Lent. I still do the Wordle um, because it had invaded my life. So I should tell all of you so that I stay accountable to that. I wanted to myself start off by saying thank you for having me. Um, I did meet Pastor Key four months ago, less than four months, um, at the New Jersey Pastors' Gathering. And um, I will tell you that uh, I... Consider that encounter a a God-given encounter. Uh, Pastor Key was exceptionally very welcoming, hospitable to me. Um, It's not very easy to be new in the area and to have someone engage you um, with such depth um, in a conversation. So I'm very, very uh, appreciative of him. Um, I should also tell you that Pastor Josh came to Joy to give us a tutorial on how to do um, a podcast. And I rarely meet someone who I think combines his passion for something and really runs with it. Not only that, uh, he decided not to hoard it to himself, but he decided to share his knowledge with another church. Um, and that brings us to today's passage. Actually, could we just uh, say a word of prayer first? Okay, let's pray. Lord, would you illuminate your word for us? For without your presence in it, without your teaching in it, it is nothing. So Lord, teach us today what it means to be your slave, your servant, and teach us today what it means to share in your joy. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to be here with us so that we might know you, recognize you, and obey you. We pray this. Amen. Okay. So I wanted to start off by saying that this is a parable that is absolutely preposterous. Uh, I don't know how many of you um, think that, but it is absolutely preposterous. And Jesus's audience would have known that fact. They would have gasped when he told the story, either out of sheer incredulity, as in what, or because they would have thought it was meant as a joke or a prank It's a parable that asks you to really look at what the characters are actually saying and doing if you are to really understand the parable at all. So in order to really get at the parable, there are two foundations that need to be laid for us to understand it. And I want to lay those two foundations first before we really get into the parable itself. So, the first is that a parable is a literary device a teaching tool that makes a comparison of two things without claiming that the two things are identical or completely analogous to one another. So for example, everybody knows, or if you don't, um, the parable of the prodigal son, which um, could be pretty familiar for, for many. The father in the story is compared to God. However, it is not to say that the Father and God are the same. I mean, to be sure, yes, the parable is meant to draw out qualities that are shared, traits that are shared, namely, in that parable, that the love of a good father welcomes his son, his wayward son, home, with open arms, even though the son is impudent, disrespectful, irresponsible. However, we are not to read God as either human, obviously, or to attribute to God any human flaws that earthly fathers have. If anything, we are to understand that God is e- um, is not equal to a f- human father. God is, in fact, in fact unlike us, and that He is gracious and compassionate and is able to forgive and love His children. Despite our myopic way of seeing life, despite our desire to seek our own good, despite us running away from him, despite our sin. Therefore, when you read the Prodigal Son, you're not going to bring into the story all your connotations of of the word father and then map them onto your understanding of a God. Okay, so does that make sense? The second thing to keep in mind when reading this parable is the use of the word doulos, which is a Greek word for the, uh, the word slave. Sometimes you will see the word translated as servant. However, we have to bear in mind that unlike the word servant, the word doulos does not bear the connotation of a free individual serving another individual. So, for instance, in our modern sensibilities, a servant could be someone like a butler. But a butler is free, and he is his own person and is actually paid wages. But the audience in Jesus' time would have known that when Jesus uses the word do loss, he means a person is not paid and has either willingly or unwillingly been placed under servitude to the master. Therefore, the word slave would be a better translation of the Greek word ser- um, than the word servant. However, it is important to keep in mind that the word doulos doesn't hold the connotations that the word slave does in our modern understanding, which carries in its history um, the Africans who were brought to the Americas, Okay. And it's hard to extricate or, and strip away all of that from the horrors of American slavery, and so from the word that we understand as the word "slave." So the best example of the use of the word "duelos," oops, I'm going the wrong direction, is um, Mary. So in. When, Mary, when the angel of the Lord comes to Mary and announces to her that she will bear a child, she says to the angel, Behold, the bondservant. She calls herself a bondservant, which is that word. Let it be to me as you say. So there's a freedom, and there's a choice, and there's a, a joy of accepting what responsibility or the way that God would choose to use her when she uses that word, okay? So that's the best way for us to understand um, the use of the word do loss." So in this parable, Jesus is telling us about three slaves who are in service to their master. And at the beginning, I had said that this uh, parable is meant to be preposterous and that Jesus' audience would have recognized that. So you see, one talent is a large sum of money equal to 15 to 20 years of a day's labor wages. So let's say we take the minimum wage in New Jersey, which is, I'm not sure if you know, it's $13 an hour. Let's say you work every day without missing a single day. So 40 hours a week for 52 weeks. So on minimum wage, you would make about $27,000 a year. Multiply that um, by the more conservative estimate of 15 years of a day's labor's wage, which means then one talent would be worth $40,000 in today's money. Keep in mind that that is supposed to be a low estimate. But even when using such a lowball estimate, that would mean the slave who was given 5 talents is handling more than 2 million dollars. Now, first of all, Jesus' audience would have gasped at the idea that a master of such wealth would entrust hand over to his slave his possession, his wealth let alone so much of it. So I ask you, in what world does this even happen? Surely not in ours. Other than the biblical story of Joseph in the Bible, I cannot think of any other story of an instance like this where a master entrusts so much to a slave. And in that story, it's because, you know, the Scripture is clear That is because the favor of the Lord was upon him, okay? But honestly, what world does such a thing ever happen? It's hard not to conclude that the master is either crazy or that the story is exaggerated for a purpose, namely to show that this master is not of this world. This master plays by completely different roles than the ones that we know in this world. So what kind of master would be willing to entrust, hand over his own name, his good name, into the care of his slaves? You see, the word entrust in the Greek means to give into the hands of, to deliver to someone something to take care of, to manage. And this word is also used to mean to deliver up one to custody, or to hand over somebody, or to yield up. And it's the word that Jesus uses whenever he tells his disciples that he is going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be delivered over into the custody of his enemies. This word is assigned to Judas and his betrayal of Jesus as well. And an instance of this is when the high priest asked Judas in the following chapter in Matthew, he says, What are you, Judas, willing to hand over to me to betray Jesus? And the very next verse says, And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver. So there's a sense of trade and commerce sense of exchange, and the idea of handing something over. Now, take notice how this master is no micromanager. He's given freedom to the slave to respond to his trust. And he's going to go on a very long journey, we're told. And during the time between when he leaves and returns, he's placing his money, his very own estate, his namesake into the hands of his slaves. And the very notion of it ought to strike us with complete shock. Because that would imply that he so intimately trusts his slaves. What kind of master would do this? The implications of this are tremendous. You see, you and I know that if we are to read Jesus as the master in this story, that means when Jesus resurrected from the dead and returned to the Father, when he ascended to heaven, he left us, his followers, his bondservants, in care of his name, his kingdom. And to each of us, He entrusted, as the uh, scripture says, according to our ability. He's given each of us a responsibility, a part to do in his kingdom, talents that he has given to us, talents that belong to him. So we have to remember that the talents have always belonged to the master. They were never ours. And it is uh, given according to um, our ability. So God is not only asking you to do something that he has not already equipped you with, but, and you're not going to manufacture your talents on your own. So the question is, do you know that you are equipped by God himself? See, the tragedy of the third slave with the one talent is that he fails to see that the master has entrusted him with his talent. Meaning the master has equipped him. He just needed to trust his master's goodness the master's generosity, he did not understand. And upon Jesus' return, even with each of us, the Lord will take account of what he has given to us. And we would have to actually respond or answer. See, I think oftentimes we have a very unhealthy view of responsibility To be given a responsibility is an honor. Implicit in the assignment of a responsibility is a mutual trust between the signer and the signee. It reminds me of um, going fishing with my own father. My father loved to fish. And, um, I mean, he was blessed to have five daughters because there were five of us. But he didn't have a son. (laughs) Um, But poor man, he didn't have a son. He really wanted a son. And um, one of the things that he loved to do is he liked to go on long fishing trips. And um, I remember as a young child thinking, gosh, he doesn't have a son. But I could do the things. I, I could do it. I could do it, I told myself. So I wanted to prove to him that even though he didn't have any sons, a daughter of his could cut worms into pieces, you know using your nails. you just kind of split them. Um, and that wouldn't be squeamish about it. And I wanted to show him that a daughter could grab a writhing fish with one hand and take the hook out of its mouth and release it into this ginormous um, ice box that we had. And I wanted to show him that his daughters too. Just as he would expect a son to do could do it, and even better. And in the beginning, he would give my sisters and me these small fishing rods. they were really short, um, and leave us in charge of catching spots, and, which are small fish that you use as bait to c- catch a bigger fish. But eventually he began to trust us with the bigger rods. And I began to catch croakers and blues and trouts and basses, flounders, and perches. And whenever I would reel in a big one, my dad would beam with delight over me. And he, um, he would be so proud of me. You see, my father knew I had caught on to the joy of fishing. He knew that the joy that he experienced was now something I shared with him. And I'll tell you, I really wanted to catch as many fish as possible just for to see the delight on my father's face. Because when my father would beam with delight at me when he would see me catching fish, I would beam right back at him And so then we would just beam at each other. There would be this mutual beaming because we understood each other's joy. And that's what the first two slaves here in this parable experience upon the master's return. They had taken what was entrusted to them and gained more. And when the master says, Well done, good and faithful slave, you were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter, he tells them, enter into the joy of your master. This joy that was just mine, now you know it. Enter into it. It is a shared joy between the master and the slave. And that is the greatest reward. You get to share in the Master's joy. Do you know that you have been entrusted and given responsibilities in God's kingdom? Do you know the joy the Lord has over you When you are fulfilled in the talents that he has given to you, have you experienced the delight of delighting in his delight? You see, in the parable, the master was always going to return. All three slaves knew this. And when the master does return, his slaves are either excited or they're scared. And the third slave, he's utterly dismayed because he lacks the imagination, he lacks the desire, or even the care to prepare for his master's return. And according to his own words, he was crippled by fear, he says, because he says that the master uh, would sow where he did not He would reap where he did not sow seeds. So what he's done here is actually turn the tables on the master. He says to him, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not um, sow and gather where you scatter no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. So what is he exactly saying? What is he implying? Now, I take it that if um, this slave had approached with some contrition and said something like, master, I didn't trust my ability. I was consumed by the fear of failure and rejection. So I hid your talent in the ground so that at least you would not lose something on my account. So here's what you gave me, and trust. If he had said something like that, I think the master's response would have been quite different. But that's not what he says, is it? The slave decides to put the blame on the master. He tells the master that he is hard. He even insinuates that the master is a cheat, accusing the master of taking profit, from where he had no real right to gain any. Jesus, his audience, would have widened their eyes in shock and gasped at the audacity of this slave. Let's say, even if what the slave was accusing the master of were true, what slave would say such accusatory words to his master's face? Or better yet, if he really thought his master was a hard man, wouldn't that have motivated him then? Because he's scared? So, is that really the reason? I don't think so. It's an excuse. So, at every angle that you look at it, Jesus tells this parable so that the third slave looks like a fool. You see, at the end of the day, the only thing that vindicates the characters in the parable is what the characters say and do. In the case of the master, the fact that he entrusted, that he trusted his slaves with such an exorbitant amount of what belongs to him speaks to his trust of them. In the case of the third slave, who hid his talent, his own words show his character, namely that he did not trust his master. This parable is meant to elicit a response from us. It's supposed to make us say to ourselves, I'm not that stupid. I'm not an idiot like that third slave. But here's where we need to be self-reflexive and check ourselves. Because we can fall into the trap of being a fool like him. Uh, I'm just going to suggest two ways. One, a lot of times our fears get the most of us, and therefore sometimes uh, we would rather accept the status quo. We don't want to step up and take whatever responsibilities that God has entrusted, has placed into our hands. We are resigned to think that if God wants something to happen, he would do it. We tell ourselves something along the lines of, it's not my responsibility. I don't need to work so hard. My job is to retain my salvation and to be safe and to just wait till Jesus comes back. So we end up not expanding our hearts. We don't expand our energies into what might bring the Lord delight. Two, when we decide not to engage with the talents that the Lord has given to each of us according to our abilities, what we're we're doing, in essence, is uh, we're deciding not to take on the responsibility. And we usually just turn up our critical dial. We say things like, well, I would give my time and my resources into this ministry, or I would care about how churches are not bearing real Christian witness in this world, but that there are things about people it's so hard. You know, the people who are in this particular ministry or the people who care about social issues that bother me. You know, there are people there that just kind of, I think, bother me too. And so the problem is beyond me. And therefore, I really am only one person. I can't do very much. So we kind of languish in our critical, critical judgment on the status quo of things. But the judgment that falls upon the slave who has hid his talent is a harsh reality. I mean, this is a really hard word. Every time I read it, I'm like, wow, this is hard. Because whatever talent was given to him is actually taken away. And it's given to the one who already has the most. Think about it. This is so true. Even in everyday situations, when we decide to step back and not engage, when we decide not to take on the responsibility and not take the risks that come with it, whatever it is, it could be our role as a parent, a spouse, a child, a friend, or even in our jobs as a coworker, a team member, Whereas a member of New Mercy Palisades, when you decide to not engage and keep hidden and buried whatever God might have placed into your hands as a responsibility, as a call to serve, what ends up happening is someone else will be given that responsibility that was actually meant for you. So then you're left with. Nothing. This is a harsh reality that Jesus is pointing out to us. He's saying, Look, in the scheme of how things work, if you don't engage in what has been entrusted to you, then you will lose that trust. No one will be able to entrust you with anything then. In the harsh realities of this world, you'll be left empty-handed and without purpose. But here's the thing. For those of you who don't want to engage because you want to avoid pain, fear of loss, and the stress that comes with that responsibility, it is true. You will avoid pain, hardship, and fear. But the flip side of that coin is you will not gain the joy that always accompanies that responsibility. It's kind of like a deadbeat father who avoids the gift of being a father because he's just too caught up in his own freedom or his own fears, okay? He might call it freedom, but he's totally losing out on the joy of being a father to a child. So when, um, when I was in my um, 30s, I had stopped serving at um, churches. I, I was actually, um, I decided, you know what, I'm going to think about myself. So I'm going to just pursue um, my own career. And I decided to step um, back from ministry. And at the time, I was um, doing children's ministry. And, you know, I don't know what it's like here, but some churches, um, children's ministry is just a, a sideshow. Uh, side it's there only to prop up um, what is for, for the adults. And um, I felt really underappreciated. And so I was like, I'm not doing that ministry anymore. And so I stepped away. And I was reading this uh, parable one morning. And I realized in that moment, oh, my goodness. I gave, I gave up the talent that God had given me. And I decided that I was just going to hide it. And I realized that... Um, all the joy that comes with it was no longer mine either. I didn't no longer had re- the relationships I had with the kids and the parents, et cetera. And it was such joy to be a part of those kids' lives. All of that was lost because I decided I was just gonna—I I was gonna step away. We're taking another example. I think of all the clubs and associations in this, that the world offers. I used to do bar method seven years ago, and um, it was really the only time that I ever really exercised. And what they do so well is they build community in these places, it's amazing. And a lot of these communities know how to accept and encourage their members. And they fulfill a need that every human being has, this longing to belong to something, and to share in a vision doesn't that sound like something to you? That should be the church. Christ's church was commissioned to be such a place. But because sometimes we don't fully engage in our talents as they're commissioned to us, there are all these other places that people could find that fulfillment. But even in those places... It doesn't fully fulfill the longing that people really have for a greater vision. Okay? This is the church's responsibility. In this parable, what we always have to keep in mind is that the Master is going to come back, Jesus will return. And when he does, the gospel of Matthew is very strong on this point. He will take into account his kingdom and what he has entrusted to us. I know that there are so many of you here that really want to beam up your joy into the face of the Father. I know that your longing is to say, Lord, look, whatever you gave me, no matter how big or small it was, I took it and I used your talent, Lord, to build your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Look at what I was able to do because you trusted me. you see, you have been handed over the good news of Jesus Christ. We have been given this gift. What will we do with it? I think at the end of the day, the real posture we ought to have and the real question we ought to ask ourselves today is, why, Lord? Why would you trust me to be your hands and feet? What do you owe me to grant me the freedom to see your talents and to see what can be made of them? Why, O Lord, would you treat me as one who carries your name, your kingdom? And with the privilege of that, I would like to respond. Help me to respond to you. So I would like to invite the praise team. And um, if we could just spend a little time in prayer and listen for God to speak to us. Do you know that God has gifted you, entrusted you with his talents? If we could even pray for the person next to us, so I'm sure you could see the talents that the people in this community have. And if we could ask God to create here at New Mercy a place where people will feel welcomed, accepted, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you know that he wants you to share in delighting, in seeing his people enjoy his presence and experience the joy and benefits of belonging and having citizenship in his kingdom? Like Mary, has God asked you to do something And if your heart desires, say to him, "Behold, the bond slave, the bond servant. Be to me as you say.